hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Christian List. Christian is professor of philosophy and political science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. His work spans a broad range of topics in political theory, including rational choice theory, decision theory, the theory of group agency, as well as democratic theory. But his new book is titled, Why Free Will is Real. It's just been published by Harvard University Press. I suspect listeners are acquainted with the classical problem of free will. It runs roughly like this. Given our scientific view of the world, how is freedom of the will possible? I suspect also that listeners will be familiar with the various strategies for addressing the challenge. Some views just flatly deny that there's free will. Others attempt in various ways to render free will consistent with a physically deterministic world. Among these latter views, there's a tendency to redefine free will in a way that dissolves the apparent tension between freedom and physical determinism. In his new book, though, Christian List defends a robust conception of free will and shows that this conception is consistent with a scientific worldview. As usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also as usual, we begin with our guest. Hello, Christian. Hi, Bob. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, uh, so um, I grew up in uh, uh, rural Germany in a very small uh, town called Nastetten, um, which is located halfway between Frankfurt and Cologne. Um, uh, but uh, then I went to um, university in uh, the UK in, in Oxford, uh, and I studied mathematics and uh, philosophy. Uh, so that's uh, uh, where my uh, interest in philosophical uh, problems um uh, was really um, you know first developed in, in in detail. I then went on uh, to do uh, uh, graduate school in um, uh, political science, also in in Oxford. So I got a um, PhD in political science. Um, I worked on mathematical models of individual and collective decision making in the area of social choice theory, and. Um, so then for the you know first uh, you know several years of my uh, career I I taught um you know primarily um, political science political philosophy um uh, social choice theory but sort of step by step I um uh, ended up uh, moving more and more into uh, core areas uh, of philosophy uh, again and uh, and now I I teach in the philosophy department at the London School of Economics um and so I teach a variety of, of different uh, things, you know, ranging from decision theory, rational choice theory, and social choice theory uh, uh, on one end of the uh, spectrum of, of my interests to uh, more metaphysical uh, questions on the other end of the spectrum. Wonderful. So, you know, um, uh, let's begin, you know, with the big picture then. Um you know, I and I suspect many listeners um, will will know you and will have first encountered your work. 
um, by way of uh, what you've done in political philosophy and stuff on judgment aggregation and the Condorcet jury theorem and all of this stuff that you've made, uh, you know, pretty influential contributions to. Um, so when I saw that you wrote a book on free will, I was kind of surprised. Um, so maybe, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in the free will issue? Was it, was it mainly by way of um, your work uh, on group agents? Well, I mean, my interest uh, in the free will problem uh, has a bunch of different uh, origins. I mean, first of all, of course, I, there is uh, my general philosophical interest. I, I think uh, uh, everyone who studies philosophy um, will <laughs> in some way or other encounter the free will problem and uh, over time uh, develop opinions on it. Um, and, you know, as I said, I've, my, my philosophical interests uh go back uh, at, at least to my undergraduate days and actually even a little bit earlier to my high school days when I decided that I wanted to, to study um, philosophy. Um, but, uh, but then, uh, secondly, um, my interest in free will uh, uh, also um, goes back to my interest in decision theory and rational choice theory. So I've spent, as I already mentioned, I've spent um, many years studying uh, decision-making by both individuals and groups. Um, and, uh, you know, when you think about um, how to best understand and explain human decision making, the question of whether human choices are free naturally arises. And uh, uh, I, I think at one point, if one keeps developing various uh, models of decision making, one really needs to um, also deal with some of the um, metaphysical um, foundations or metaphysical presuppositions of of uh, of these models and and theories and so that's um, a second reason why i got interested in the free will problem and then um thirdly when you mentioned my work on uh, group agency so together with uh, philip pettit um i've defended the view that um certain organized collectives uh, like um corporations certain um uh, other uh, organizations universities um uh, some kinds of committees or collegial courts uh, can be um, agents in their own right over and above their individual members. And um, if one uh, you know, takes the view that um, groups can be agents, then that raises some more general questions about how should we think about intentional um, agency? You know, what uh, does intentional agency involve more generally and is free will um, and a necessary presupposition of intentional agency uh, or, or, or not. And so that's another uh, reason why I got uh, very much interested in the free will problem. Well, fantastic. Um, so uh, let's talk about the book. Um, and this is a, a, you know, an admirably um, uh, concise, but also um, philosophically rich book. So um Congratulations on that. This is a packs a lot of punch in a in a small number of of uh, a small number of pages. Well, thank you. Um, so, uh, as I understand the debates, and I'm mostly an interloper, you know, uh, uh, on these metaphysical questions, um, those who defend free will, who want to, you know, maintain a, a sort of naturalistic worldview. Um, typically, proceed by some redefinition strategy. Um, they try to reconcile free will with the scientific worldview mainly by um, offering some um, 
uh, leveled down or uh, a simplified version of free will. They try to show that, um, you know, free will doesn't really require that you could have done otherwise or, you know, that somehow they, they, they prune it down in certain ways. Yeah. Um, but you're out to defend a pretty robust conception of free will where it includes alternative possibilities and uh, causal control and these sorts of things. Um, so why don't we start there? Can, can you just give us the picture of what, in your view, does it take for there to be free will? Yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, on a first gloss, free will is an agent's ability to choose and control um, uh, his or her own, own actions. Um uh, but now if we try to flesh this out uh, a bit more carefully, then I think free will requires um, uh, three things. First of all, free will requires intentional agency. So um, only uh, entities or beings or organisms that qualify as intentional agents uh, could uh, also be bearers of free will. I mean, if you take... Um, um, a system that is not an intentional agent, let's say um, a tomato or an armchair <laughs> or a washing machine or a fridge or whatever it might be, um, clearly the question of free will doesn't even um, arise. So intentional agency, uh, I, I think, is clearly necessary for, for free will. Secondly, I think free will requires um, alternative possibilities. So this is this famous idea that free will requires that... Uh, uh, you know, I could have done otherwise, which you already mentioned. Um, and and uh, I think there is um, a lot of evidence to suggest that um, uh, most uh, or that uh, most people, um, before having encountered philosophy and you know thought about philosophical questions, have a fairly powerful intuition that you know free will uh, involves or requires alternative possibilities. I mean, some. Uh, philosophers, after further reflection, have ended up, um, you know, giving up this alternative possibilities requirement uh, for for free will, and that's a giving up alternative possibilities uh, as a requirement for free will is a feature of uh, of some kinds of compatibilist views about uh, free will. But I think uh, that's clearly a somewhat watered down notion of free will. Mm-hmm. So I am um, very much with the. Uh, libertarian intuition, libertarian in the metaphysical sense, that free will does require alternative possibilities. If I couldn't have done otherwise, my action wouldn't count as free. And then finally, free will um, requires um, uh, causal control over our actions. Um, So it's not um, enough for um, free will uh, that uh, you know, somehow um, you know there are alternative possibilities ahead of us, forks in the road, but then some kind of uh, completely random process puts us uh, <laughs> on uh, one trajectory rather than another. Uh, rather, um, it has to be the case that uh, you know whichever course of action I, I choose is really under uh, my causal control in the appropriate sense, and this requires that my intentional mental state is the cause of the uh, of the action uh, rather than um, something else so in short for me free will um, requires three things intentional agency alternative possibilities and causal control over our actions and so in that sense i actually um, accept a relatively robust um no libertarian sounding uh, notion mm-hmm. of uh, free will rather than some of those um you know more watered down conceptions of free will 
uh, which uh, give up, uh, you know, some of these three requirements, uh, in particular, very often alternative possibilities. Right. And you call your view, uh, it's a kind of compatibilism. Is that true? My view is a kind of compatibilism, although um, I've actually <laughs> uh, adopted uh, the paradoxical uh, sounding um, label uh, uh, compatibilist libertarianism. Uh, this is, uh, you know, to signal two things. Uh, it is uh, to signal that um, uh, the, the structure of my view in some respects is libertarian insofar as, I mean, libertarians uh, about free will insist uh, that free will, you know, in addition to um, uh, intentional agency and control over our actions uh, requires alternative possibilities and that we truly have alternative possibilities. And uh, and here I agree. I, I think free will does require alternative possibilities and we do have alternative possibilities. So um, in, in, in that sense, uh, I do endorse a kind of libertarianism about free will. But my um, project uh, is to show that... Um, this kind of libertarianism, uh, appropriately understood, is actually compatible with the rest of a scientific worldview, and it is also compatible with uh, with physical determinism. And so that's uh, signaled by this uh, label, uh, compatibilist uh, libertarianism. I mean, I do <laughs> offer an alternative label as well, um, namely free will emergentism, and you know, as uh, will probably become clear as we uh, go, go along in our conversation um, that the, the, the label free will emergentism uh, signals, uh, you know, another core feature of my view about free will. Right. There's uh, something to be said for um, the branding of one's view. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm reminded um, the, the, the term libertarian is being used in its political sense by uh, Sunstein and Thaler, of course, with a different paradoxical view, uh, libertarian paternalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, the book is uh, very elegantly laid out. That is, once you identify um, the three components that you think have to be in play in order uh, for an agent um, uh, uh, or a system to count as um, having freedom of the will, uh, you then identify quite rightly that challenges to free will tend to focus on you know one uh, uh, or the other of these three commitments. Um, so intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and causal control. And then the book unfolds by just you defending each of the three legs that your, um, you know, your, uh, your view stands on. Um, so let's just follow the progression of the argument. Um, so how do you defend the idea that um, there's such a thing as intentional agency? Yeah. So, um, I mean, maybe I should say uh, what the free will skeptics very often uh, say um, Good. about um, free will. So, I mean, as uh, uh, I mean, you uh, will. Uh, uh, you, know, so you already mentioned um, uh, there is uh, uh, there is a fair amount of uh, free will skepticism uh, these these days. Uh, in um, if you uh, browse the popular science section of a bookshop, uh, you'll you're likely to come across uh, some books uh, claiming that you know science show 
uh, that there is no such thing as free uh, free will. Free will doesn't fit into a um, scientifically informed uh, worldview. And free will skeptics um, typically begin with a um, premise that free will requires these various uh, properties that I mentioned, namely intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and causation of our actions by our mental states. But the skeptics then claim that... Uh, uh, either physics or some other fundamental science like neuroscience um, shows that there is no such thing as property P. So, uh, you know, property P, intentional agency, alternative possibilities or uh, causal control over our actions, that they say is not to be found among the fundamental physical features of the world. Um, they uh, argue that, you know, perhaps it's just a, a convenient fiction of our pre-scientific way of thinking, maybe a leftover um, from a um, folk theory of agency or folk theory of uh, psychology before we properly understood neuroscience or we, before we properly understood that uh, human beings are ultimately uh, just physical systems. And so then different arguments against uh, free will um, at, uh, look at uh, different ones of these uh, prerequisites for free will, whether it is agency, whether it is alternative possibilities, or whether it is, uh, whether it is causal control uh, over our actions. And um, you, um, uh, now you asked, you know, how do I defend uh, the um, uh, claim that, uh, you know, human beings uh, truly are intentional agents? Um, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, as, I, as I said, the free will skeptics, um, you know, very often suggest that intentional agency is is just an outdated um, folk notion and has no place in a scientific understanding of of human beings. I call this the challenge from radical materialism. Now, um, uh, I uh, uh, respond to this uh, challenge by giving an indispensability argument um, mm -hmm. for um, the idea that uh, humans are intentional agents. So in, in short, um, uh, I argue that our best explanations of human behavior, not only um, in ordinary life, but uh, also in the human and social sciences, uh, depict humans as intentional agents, that is, agents with goals and purposes, beliefs and desires, uh, who make choices between different courses of action. Um, and um, furthermore, um, uh, I uh, uh, argue that when our best explanations of a given phenomenon, uh, in this case human behavior, invoke certain properties or entities, and this is not incompatible with the rest of science, then we have very good grounds for treating those properties or entities as uh, as real. And if we put these two uh uh, strands of my argument uh, together, then this supports uh, realism about the intentional agency of human beings. And just to spell this out in a little bit more um, detail, mm -hmm. I mean, there are different ways in which we could try to think about human beings. So we could try to think about human beings as uh, heaps of gazillions of interacting particles uh, governed by the laws of physics. Um, or alternatively, we could think of them as intentional agents, as I said, with goals and purposes, beliefs and desires, with the ability to deliberate about their actions and make rational choices or approximately rational choices. Um, and um, now uh, it's worth noting that 
if we look at the way in which the human and social sciences uh, make sense of human behavior, um, they uh, absolutely have to rely on this uh, second way of thinking about human beings, namely as intentional agents, rather than just as heaps of interacting particles. So, um, you know, you can think of the uh, one picture of humans as the very reductionistic picture, and the the other one as the as the non-reductive picture. And although um, the various different human and uh, social sciences disagree about uh, you know many questions concerning you know how we should explain human behavior and human decision making, um, the one thing that I think all of these different approaches from sociology and economics to anthropology, psychology and cognitive science uh, have in common is uh, that they treat humans as um, as intentional agents. Um, and furthermore, uh, the psychological descriptions that we um, invoke when we think of humans as intentional agents, or ascribing, for instance, intentional mental states to uh, human beings, those descriptions um, are arguably irreducible to physical description. So there is no translation manual by which we can uh, translate psychological properties uh, into uh, you know, easily expressible conjunctions of um, uh, physical uh, properties. And, um, and uh, so com- combining these um, uh, observations, um, we get... Uh, Arguments b- both for the indispensability and the irreducibility of um, uh, descriptions of humans as intentional agents, and uh, that in turn uh, then leads me to adopt a um, realist attitude towards intentional agency. Now you could still, see. could you yeah you could still ask uh, you know perhaps this talk of intentional agency is just instrumentally uh, useful but no more than right. that but. My uh, my claim here is that it's generally good scientific methodology um, to treat those uh, properties or entities that are invoked by our best scientific explanations of a given phenomenon uh, as real provided uh, none of this is incompatible with the rest of uh, of science. This is sometimes called the naturalistic ontological attitude. And uh, you know, my case for uh, realism uh, about intentional agency uh, you know, using this indispensability argument does appeal to the naturalistic ontological attitude. I see. And could you maybe just fill it out a little bit more by way of a contrast with um, a sort of strategy that I'm sure many of the listeners uh, who've tuned in will be familiar. So we've, we've, you know, I think it's, it's, it's entered into the general philosophical vernacular, uh, this Daniel Dennett uh, style strategy of the intentional stance. Your view is not simply an intentional stance view. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, uh, so, I mean, Dennett very helpfully introduced this notion of the intentional stance. So he says, um, there are different stances that we can take uh, towards, uh, you know, various entities or systems in explaining them. So when we explain um, the uh, solar system, uh, let's say the movement of the planets around the sun, we take a physical stance towards that system. Uh, when we explain how my washing machine works, we take an, a design stance towards that system. But in the case of uh, of humans or also other mammals, 
um, we take an intentional stance uh, towards them by explaining them as uh, intentional agents. Now, um, uh, this um, uh, idea is sometimes um, uh, presented as part of an interpretivist view about what agency is. So according to right. an interpretivist view, to be an agent is just to be interpretable um, as an agent. Um, and uh, I do not uh, uh, agree with an interpretivist um, uh, view because I think um, the, the interpretivist view um, tends to conflate uh, the evidence for agency with the property of agency itself. So I think uh, um, interpretability as an agent or explicability as an agent is very good evidence for agency, but it is not quite the same as, as the property of agency. So therefore, I think when we uh, can take uh, an intentional stance towards a given uh, system and taking the intentional stance towards that system is uh, indispensable, that's very good evidence for agency. I see. Um, so that's how you get the 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 sort of realist upshot. It's not simply that there's a um, non-negotiable interpretive stance that we have to take when we are interacting with certain kinds of things, such that we attribute to them intentional agency. It's that um, the fact that um, uh, interpreting them as having uh, as as being intentional agents is sort of non-negotiable. That is. Um, uh, good, maybe conclusive evidence for a realist um, conclusion that they in fact are intentional agents. Is that how it runs? Yeah. Well, so um, re remember um, my my argument um, for uh, realism about uh, the intentional agency of humans has these has these two premises. You know, one uh, premise uh, says that. Uh, um, uh, explaining uh, human beings uh, as intentional agents with goals and purposes, beliefs and desires who make choices uh, is um, explanatorily indispensable for many um, purpose, explanatory purposes in the human and social sciences. And then the second premise is that you know, when our best explanations of a given phenomenon um, invoke certain properties or entities and we have no incompatibility with the rest of science, then we have good grounds for, for treating those properties or entities as real. So the first of these premises is really a, a claim about uh, what our best explanations um, uh, are in the human and social sciences. Uh, the second uh, is a philosophical um, premise um, uh, that uh, you know, is, is a version of what is known as the as the naturalistic ontological attitude, uh, uh, namely the idea that you know, when we want to figure out um, which properties or entities are real, our best guide to those ontological questions is given by uh, our best scientific theories of the relevant mm -hmm. domains. And the, the logic of the argument is not so different from um, the one... Um, behind, uh, or let's say, the case for realism about um, the Higgs boson or other elementary particles in physics. You know, why do we uh, now think that the Higgs boson is, is real? Well, it turns out that our best explanations of certain physical phenomena, in this case in particle physics, um, uh, posits the Higgs boson. Um, the Higgs boson turns out to be explanatorily indispensable. Moreover, all of this fits together, uh, you know, very nicely and consistently with 
the, the rest of, of fundamental science. And if we then combine this with this naturalistic ontological attitude, we have a very strong case um, for realism about the, the Higgs boson. And so my suggestion is um, the very same naturalistic ontological attitude that uh, underpins the case for realism, for instance, about unobservables in physics, that very same attitude can also support the case for uh, realism about certain higher level properties or um, entities, um, such as in the um, uh, uh, such as in the human and social sciences. And intentional agency, um, I think, is very much supported by a very similar kind of uh, indispensability argument to the one that we give for something like uh, you know the, the Higgs boson in, in physics. I see. Good. Um, so uh, let's take it then as uh, established that um, there's such a thing as intentional agency. Uh, so let's move on now to uh, alternative possibilities. Your conception of free will requires there to be alternative possibilities. Um, and um, there are lots of not only free will skeptics, but um, standard compatibilists who either deny that there are alternative possibilities or deny, this is taking a slightly weaker claim, or deny that alternative possibilities are necessary for free will. Um, why do you think that there are alternative possibilities? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the first thing we have to do in, in answering this question is define what we mean by alternative possibilities. So if we look at the philosophical literature, there are a variety of different definitions uh, out there, so-called conditional, dispositional, and, and modal definitions. So on a conditional definition, um, to say that uh, you know, I could have done otherwise when I made a choice is simply to say that uh, if I had uh, wanted or tried to do something else, then I would have succeeded in doing something else. Um, uh, on a dispositional interpretation to say that I could have done otherwise is to say that um, uh, I have the um, the disposition to do otherwise uh, under uh, certain appropriately qualified uh, conditions. Finally, uh, on a modal interpretation uh, to say that I could have done otherwise is, is, is to say that uh, it is genuinely possible for me to do otherwise in, in an appropriate sense of possibility. Now, the, the first thing to, to note here is that um, if we're interested in um, uh, reconciling uh, free will with uh, determinism, then uh, uh, it can make a difference which of these interpretations we pick. Um, mm. It's very well known in uh, 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 co compatibilist um, uh, theories of, of free will, that if we were to go for a conditional definition of alternative possibilities, uh, we can uh, you know, quite straightforwardly reconcile alternative possibilities with determinism. So, I mean, even if um, the world was inexorably just on one single trajectory ever since the Big Bang, um, it could still be true that, you know, in the nearest possible world in which... Uh, I tried or wanted to do something else, I would have succeeded. Uh, it, you know, right. it just so happens that the antecedent of this conditional uh, you know, couldn't have been uh, true in, in this world, but this in no way undermines uh, the, the, the truth of that, uh, that conditional. So on this sort of conditional interpretation, it's, 
relatively unproblematic to reconcile free will with determinism. The problem is that um, a conditional interpretation of alternative possibilities really waters down uh, the idea of alternative possibilities. So if I want, if I say I could have done otherwise, I want to say not just that you know I would have done otherwise if the world had been just a little bit different. But I want to say that, you know, I could have done otherwise uh, in the circumstances as they were. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, a similar point could be made about the modal, uh, uh, sorry, about the dispositional interpretation. Again, I think that the, while the dispositional interpretation makes it uh, relatively straightforward to reconcile alternative possibilities with determinism, again, that interpretation ends up watering down alternative possibilities as I see it. So that's why I go for a modal interpretation. So for, to, to say that I could have done otherwise really is to say that um, it is genuinely possible for me uh, to do um, uh, otherwise. Um, now, at this point, it's um, you know quite clear that uh, having alternative possibilities requires a form of indeterminism and uh, I call this indeterminism at the level of agency. So for an agent to have alternative possibilities, it must be possible for that agent uh, to do um, otherwise. Now, you might then think, um, you know, how could we possibly reconcile uh, this form of indeterminism at the level of agency with, uh, uh, with physical determinism? I mean, if um, the world... Uh, was deterministic at some fundamental physical level, so we had deterministic laws of of nature. Uh, no, how could it ever be possible for an agent to do otherwise? My my claim here is that um, you know we must carefully distinguish between uh, determinism at the fundamental physical level on the one hand and determinism at the level of agency on the other hand. Um, and um, my uh, and I, I develop an argument um, to the effect that physical determinism uh, is compatible with indeterminism at the level of agency. Now, this looks a little bit like a, like a subtle and, and surprising move, and I get a lot of uh, pushback <laughs> for, for, for that uh, for that move. But the key insight here is that the distinction between determinism and indeterminism is actually a level-specific distinction. So um, it doesn't really make that much sense to say, is the world deterministic or indeterministic simpliciter if we do not carefully specify the level uh, at which we are asking this um, this question? Um so, uh, you know, once we carefully specify the level at which we're asking this question, um, are we looking at the level of fundamental physics? Are we looking at the uh, level of chemistry? Are we looking at the level of biology? Are we looking at the level of psychology uh, and, and, and so on? Then once we, f- once we specify that level, the distinction between determinism and indeterminism becomes an entirely um, precise and, and meaningful uh, distinction. Um, but now... Um, uh, it it turns out, and this was actually, you know, a, for for me a surprising discovery when I uh, when I first uh, you know uh, worked on this on this point. You know, actually many years ago I wrote, wrote the first paper on this in two thousand eleven. Um, 
the, the surprising discovery is that physical level determinism does not imply um, agential level determinism. And just in a, in a nutshell, it would be difficult to spell out the details uh, fully without uh, you know, go, going into a, a little bit more you know, mathematics and formalism, which I can't co uh, cover here. But, but the key point is that um, uh, higher level descriptions like those um, that we employ when we, um, uh, when we uh, talk about agency in, in the special sciences um, are more coarse-grained than fundamental physical level uh, descriptions. And um, the distinction between determinism and indeterminism is uh, not generally preserved under coarse graining. So uh, it is entirely possible for um, a dynamical system to behave deterministically um, at a very fine-grained level when we then uh, re-describe the system in a more coarse-grained way. The very same system um, uh, may behave indeterministically. And, and, and interestingly, the reverse is also possible. So you could mm -hmm. have a system uh, that behaves indeterministically at a very fine-grained level and then behaves deterministically at a very uh, coarse-grained level. That's the sort of phenomenon that you know people might sometimes look into uh, when they talk about uh, you know macroscopic determinism as a sort of emergent phenomenon even if microphysics might be might be indeterministic um, and so once we realize that the distinction between determinism and indeterminism is a level specific distinction uh, then um, we we can actually see that um, Uh, that um, indeterminism in physics is neither necessary for free will nor even sufficient for free will. Really, the issue of physical determinism or indeterminism is just logically completely independent from the issue of determinism or indeterminism at the level of agency. And what I argue uh, matters for free will and is required for free will is indeterminism at the level of, of agency. And that, as I've just uh, you know, briefly explained, is fully compatible with determinism at the level of physics. Now, that's really just a compatibility point. Um, one then still needs to establish that our best theories of uh, human agency and our best theories of human decision-making actually um, depict uh, human beings as... Uh, indeterministic rather than deterministic. So if it turned out that, let's say, our best theory of psychology, maybe at some point in the future, were to depict humans as deterministic automata, you know, at the level of agency, at the level of psychology, then once again, that would very much, uh, you know, go against uh, uh, the alternative possibilities requirement um, for, for free will. But, um, but here, And this uh, connects somewhat with um, the earlier discussion that we had about uh, intentional agency. Uh, the, the point here is that the idea of humans facing decision nodes with alternative possibilities, with alternative options to choose from, is really absolutely central to the human and, and social uh, sciences. And uh, so, therefore, um, I, I argue that a form of agential-level indeterminism involving uh, uh, involving um, uh, option availability um, is at this point completely explanatorily 
indispensable in the human and social sciences. And insofar as this does not in any way conflict with physical level determinism, we should be uh, realists about uh, indeterminism at the uh, level of agency. And that's why I uh, think that human beings uh, do really have alternative possibilities. Right. And one of the that was very nicely explained and, and uh, those who go out and get the book, uh, which I hope will be uh, many of our listeners, um, should know that there's um, a pretty straightforward model theoretic um, uh, argument uh, with respect to the point we were, we were just discussing in the book. So it's not a um, uh, it's not a, a purely sort of um, uh, intuitive uh you know, there's a levels distinction that people are missing. There's uh, there's a real model theoretic uh, presentation of of this point uh, uh, in that chapter of the book. Um, but one of the nice things, uh, as you were just saying, is that um, throughout the book, um, at the relevant junctures, at least, um, you know, you you remind us that um, should science uh, in the future go a certain way or should the human sciences uh, develop uh, along a certain path path which they may um then uh you know then the case for free will you know uh would be defeated that's right yeah. so there's a oh. kind of empirical element to it right that's 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 absolutely right so um i really want this um defense of uh free will to be um a, a, a scientifically um uh, informed and scientifically um, respectable one. And so at various points, I really rely on um, uh, empirical premises or scientific premises, premises concerning the nature of our best scientific explanations of certain phenomena. And uh, while I um, uh, think and, uh, and, and argue that the picture of uh, humans as intentional agents who uh, face choices between alternative possibilities uh, is uh, explanatorily indispensable in the human and social sciences and, and will remain explanatorily indispensable. Um, uh, if um, uh, this assumption turned out to be wrong and if we ended up with uh, you know, a completely different, uh, maybe reductionistic uh, theory of psychology, one that perhaps reduces psychology to neuroscience or that uh, that um, explains humans uh, perfectly just as mechanistic, deterministic automata, then at this point, uh, my empirical premises uh, uh, in the argument would, would no longer um, uh, be, be, be true and uh, I would have to concede defeat and uh, accept that there is no such thing as free will. And I think that's actually a, a virtue rather than yeah. a, a vice of, uh, of my theory. Exactly. Um, so the um, the next uh, sort of hurdle uh, is uh, to defend the idea that um, that we have causal control of our actions, and I take it that um, there are um, pretty uh, dominant versions of free will skepticism that um, attack this idea, mainly drawing from. Uh, what are uh, at this point, I think, uh, fairly well-known experimental results about, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the neural activity that constitutes the formation of the intention preceding anything that looks like, uh, um, uh, um, or that the, the the neural activity that that generates the action looks like it precedes anything that could count as the formation of an intention. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your defense of the idea that we have 
that we are intentional agents facing alternative possibilities that indeed have causal control over what we do. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are different um, kinds of arguments um, against uh, the, the claim that um, we have causal control over our actions as intentional um, agents. Um, so, uh, arguments against mental causation in, in a nutshell. Um, there are the various influential neuroscientific uh, arguments uh, which uh, you've just uh, referred to, um, uh, which uh, you know look at uh, neuronal readiness potentials uh, uh, that uh, precede um, uh, voluntary uh, voluntary actions, voluntary uh, movements, and suggest that uh, it's really the subconscious, subintentional brain activity that is the cause of an agent's action rather than the um, intentional mental state. And then uh, on the more philosophical side, um, there is Jack Ron Kim's uh, uh, very influential um, causal exclusion argument uh, right. against mental causation, or at least against mental causation unless we identify mental states with, with physical um, brain states. Now, um, I think... Um, uh, if we, uh, you know, look into this issue of, you know, whether we can define um, mental uh, causation against both the neuroscientific and um, philosophical uh, counter arguments, we need to be very clear about how we define causation. Um, so uh, the neuroscientific uh, arguments often don't spell out precisely what they mean uh, by causation. Um, and the um, uh, causal exclusion argument in, in, in metaphysics and in philosophy um, tends to rely on what can be described as a production account of causation. So the idea that is that causes somehow produce their effects, but then um, it's often not entirely clear what we mean by by production um, here. Yeah. So and it's perhaps a somewhat you know, metaphysically. Uh, uh, loaded uh, but slightly opaque notion. Now, I prefer an account of causation as uh, as difference making, and uh, here I um, follow the um, uh, you know very prominent and increasingly prominent um, uh, interventionist uh, theory of uh, causation, uh, no, which is. Uh, now perhaps the, the leading approach to causation in uh, fields that, that study uh, causal models. Um, mm. And um, and so on uh, a difference-making or interventionist account of causation, um, causal relations are systematic difference-making relations that remain in place even when we carefully control for confounding um, factors. Um, and so when we look uh, for the cause of a particular effect, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what is the difference maker of this effect? Um, and not just what is the producer of this effect in a sort of slightly vague and opaque sense. And um, now uh, one um, very important point, um, and uh, here I actually uh, build on joint work that uh, I did, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago with, with Peter Menzies, and then we uh, kept working on, on this over the years. Um, an important point here is that if we understand causation as difference-making, um, it's no longer generally the case that uh, uh, 
causes for certain effects are always to be identified at the most um, fine-grained or fundamental level of description. So, um, of of course, when, um, let's say, uh, when I um, perform an, an action, for instance, I intend to uh, raise my, my arm to, to lift a glass in order to drink uh, a little bit of water, uh, there is no doubt that there is some underlying physical process in my brain and body that, that is the sort of neural or physical backstory of all of this. This is completely undeniable. Um, but uh, it's not obvious that um, the very precise physical brain state uh, uh, also qualifies as the difference-making cause of my, um, uh, of my, um, of my action um, insofar as my action of, you know, moving my arm to, to drink a, a little bit of water, that could actually be invariant under a variety of uh, small changes in the underlying uh, physical brain state, um, while, by contrast, uh, my intentional mental state um, co-varies very, very systematically with the action in, in question. And if this is so, if it if it turns out that those higher level intentional mental states uh, stand in the most systematic uh, um, uh, counterfactual difference making relationship with the actions in question, rather than the detailed uh, uh, physical brain states, then it would be the higher level mental states that qualify as the difference making causes of the action, and not the underlying physical brain states. And I give you an analogy um, from um, the, the social sciences, which should drive home a, a, a similar a point or structurally similar point. Um, think about um, macroeconomics. So the central bank raises the inf- interest rate and inflation goes down. And that's a very well-established uh, regularity. And um, then we ask, well, what is the cause uh, of the uh, decrease in inflation here? Um, Is it the change in the interest rate or rather a a very, very uh, complicated set of um, market transactions, uh, choices by individual Mm -hmm. uh, consumers, producers, market participants, investors, and so on, uh, you know, which in aggregate then uh, had an effect on on inflation. So, uh, if we cite the change in the interest rate um, as the cause, then uh, we are basically appealing to a macro variable. Whereas, if we were to look at the sort of precise micro configuration of all these market participants, then we would be appealing to a um, a, a very detailed uh, micro state of the of the economy and. Um, and it should be quite clear that the uh, change in um, uh, in, uh, in inflation uh, can be actually quite robust to uh, a variety of different changes in the micro details uh, of of how the interest rate change then you know trickles through the through the economy. This is uh, among other things due to the fact that these macro variables are very much multiply realizable at the at, at the micro level and uh, so clearly the the difference making cause of the change in um, inflation here quite plausibly is the macro variable the interest rate which was changed rather than the uh, you know micro level 
uh, backstory um, about all the little details uh, of, of the economy and the various market participants. And so in much the same way, the difference-making cause of uh, uh, an action that, that an agent performs uh, uh, can be the intentional mental state of that agent uh, even though that intentional mental state undoubtedly supervenes on some physical uh, brain state and uh, there is uh, clearly a physical level backstory of how the brain and body then uh, implements all of this process in producing uh, the, the action. And so the point is, therefore, if we understand causation as difference-making rather than production, we have very good grounds to reject uh, something like the causal exclusion argument uh, against mental causation. And we have also grounds, as I argue in my book, to be skeptical about the claim that neuronal readiness potentials really qualify as difference-making causes of the resulting actions. Uh, I think neuronal readiness potentials are certainly part of the physical level implementation mechanism. And in that sense, these famous neuroscientific evidence shed a lot of interesting light on the lower level mechanisms by which the brain uh, implements, uh, for instance, voluntary um, uh, voluntary actions. Um, but uh, I'm not at all convinced that those neuroscientific arguments really pick up the correct difference-making causes of the resulting actions. I see, I see. So, um, well, that... Um that completes then the uh, the defense of uh, free of, of free will understood as uh, intentional the combination of intentional agency and alternative possibilities with uh, causal control. Um, the book closes uh, with some speculations uh, concerning you know the possibility of non human free agents. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So. Um it, it, it's a very interesting question, of course, whether humans are the only uh, uh, agents right. with free will or whether non-human animals, for instance, uh, have or can have free will as well, or whether um, you know, robots uh, or artificial uh, intelligent systems could, could also have free will or, you know, group agents, for instance, have free will. So we can ask this question about a number of different um, entities. And I think... Um, my theory of free will um, gives us some guidance on how to answer these uh, these questions. So um, I've uh, argued um, that you know free will requires intentional agency, alternative possibilities to choose from, and uh, causal control over um, uh, the relevant actions. And um, in addition, um, as we've discussed in, in, in some detail, um, I've you know, tried to give um, a sort of naturalistic uh, analysis of uh, each of these three requirements. And so now, in principle, um, uh, we have uh, a checklist uh, that we can go through in assessing uh, whether a given system has free will. So if you uh, if you show me any system or entity or organism or whatever it might be, um, in order to settle the question or to answer the question whether that system or entity has free will, we need to figure out whether that entity qualifies as an intentional agent, um, whether it has alternative possibilities in the relevant sense, and whether that system 
exercises causal control over uh, over its actions in the relevant sense. Um, and uh, now, if we go through this checklist, and for instance, we look at um, non-human animals, then uh, I, I think there are very good reasons to think that um, uh, many mammals uh, would uh, satisfy those conditions, uh, even though you know, their cognitive capacities are clearly not uh, the, the same as those of, of humans. But um, you know, take chimpanzees, for instance, um, I think we have very good reasons to ascribe uh, agency to uh, chimpanzees and to not just view them as biophysical automata. And indeed, I think um, uh, many biologists in areas such as behavioral ecology uh, certainly use uh, certain kinds of um, intentional stance explanations also for non-human animals like like, yeah. like primates so i think uh, it's it's clear that that chimpanzees would have agency um i think the arguments uh, about alternative possibilities um also carry over to chimpanzees when we think of them as choice making uh, agents and then um, finally i think we have um, you know very good reasons to think uh, that uh, a similar story that we tell about mental causation in the human case uh, would also apply to the to the case of other primates. So that would suggest that uh, chimpanzees uh, do have a form of free will. Now, um, that's of course not the same as saying that um, they also uh, are fit to be held morally responsible. So fitness to be held morally responsible arguably requires more than just free will. For instance, it would require the capacity for normative reasoning, and that's something which is uh, which is absent in, in chimpanzees. Um, uh, uh, and, I mean, with in the case of other mammals, the cognitive capacities wouldn't be quite the same as those of uh, chimpanzees, but uh, uh, I think it's plausible to suggest that um, we've got a continuum uh, of, of, of aging mm. here, and it's hard to draw a sharp line. Now, if you look at um, AI systems or robots, um, uh, well, it all depends on uh, the uh, complexity and cognitive sophistication of those systems. You know, it might very well be that uh, it, that current AI technology um, uh, is is not uh, you know sufficiently advanced uh, to warrant the conclusion that you know all three requirements for free will uh, are, are satisfied. But it is. In- but it's obvious that there's no conceptual barrier as to why an AI system uh, could not also qualify as an intentional agent, uh, have alternative possibilities in this uh, uh, agential level sense that that I described, and uh, could be said to exercise uh, causal control over its actions. And if the answer to these questions is yes, and if that's the answer given by our best scientific theory of those systems, um, then uh, I think we would have to go with a conclusion that those systems do really have um, free will. And I think something similar can be said about um, group agents um, as well. I mean, I don't necessarily uh, you know, claim uh, to um, you know, have settled all these empirical details. Uh, you know, what is the very best theory of animal behavior in the case of a particular 
species of animals or what is the very best theory of AI systems or what is the very best theory of group agents, though I have my own strong views about these these issues. But um, you know, once we plug in whatever we take to be our best scientific theory of uh, each of these class of entities, that in turn should then inform our answers to the questions of whether those systems uh, are intentional agents, have alternative possibilities and exercise causal control over, over our actions. And we can then apply my theory of free will uh, to arrive at a conclusion of uh, you know, whether those systems um, uh, have free will or not. Well, fantastic. Um, Christian, you've been uh, very generous with your time today, so I want to thank you uh, for that. Um, very quickly, uh, what's your next project? Yeah, so um, I, um, I you know, always tend to work on um, a variety of different things uh, together, and, and you know, very often um, different projects that seem at first sight somewhat disparate uh, tend to usefully inform one another. So I'm, uh, first of all, I'm working on the theme of uh, levels of description and ontological levels more generally, not just um, applied to the problem of free will, uh, as in the case of this uh, book, but applied to a variety of other problems uh, in um, philosophy. And, uh, and just recently, I, I wrote a paper on um, uh, uh, levels, descriptive, explanatory, and, and ontological, and uh, I'm hoping to uh, expand this uh, work um, somewhat further because I actually think that uh, a, a lot of uh, philosophical problems uh, can be usefully uh, illuminated um, by recognizing uh, that we can describe the world at a variety of different uh, levels and exploring the relationship between those levels and then also by exploring uh, to what extent uh, the use of different levels of description um, might be indicative of a of an underlying leveled ontology. Relatedly, I'm doing some work on consciousness, um, revisiting the debate between physicalism and its rivals uh, through the lens of this uh, of this leveled uh, framework. Um, I've uh, started giving some talks on on these themes, but uh, hopefully uh, at, at at some point I'll uh, get to write up uh, those uh, ideas a little bit more systematically. And then finally, I continue to do my uh, decision theoretic and social choice theoretic work uh, on uh, reason-based choice as well as judgment aggregation with my long-standing co-author, um, Franz Dietrich. And you know, we have a variety of um, uh, ongoing uh, works. I mean, for instance, at, at this point, there's been a lot of uh, discussion of the idea of the will of the people um, <laughs> in the context of the rise of, uh, of, of populism. And... Uh, the technical results from social choice theory uh, uh, allow us to, um, uh, you know, criticize or critically uh, uh, reassess the notion of the will of the people. And uh, we've got some uh, work in uh, progress on on this theme uh, as well. So as you can see, it's a it's a mix of different things, but um, uh, but. Uh, uh, as as I said, there, there, there's there's nonetheless a, a, a certain amount of uh, connection between the different themes, and I'd like to think that, uh, um, for instance, my work on uh, free will has been usefully informed by my work on decision theory, even though decision theory doesn't feature all that prominently in the free will book. Well, uh, I will keep an eye on the journals for uh, 
new papers uh, on, uh, you know, on, along all of those uh, three lines that you just described. So, Christian, um, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It was a real pleasure, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed the book. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today for our discussion of Christian List's new book. It's titled Why Free Will is Real, and it was just published. Uh, it's new, newly published by Harvard University Press. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>